everybody, welcome back to Pretend World's Real People. As always, I'm Tyler, and uh, I know it's been a little bit crazy. It was Halloween on Monday, we had an episode on Monday, but now you get an episode on Thursday, because this weekend is the Denver Film Festival. Now, I haven't been, oh my god, I don't think I've been to the Denver Film Festival in well over 10 years, at least since I was midway through college. Uh, I just didn't have time. I was always working constantly busy, but freshman, sophomore year, kind of in a junior year, I went religiously just to see all the independent films, whether they were, you know, most of them were actually made in Colorado, which was great. So supporting local film in that way, but also independent film from all over the country and all over the world. And it's just a, it's a really fun festival to check out. I know it's a little bit smaller, but if you're within, you know, driving distance come check it out seriously make a weekend out of it it's so much fun sitting down hearing all these great creatives talk about their projects talk about their films and uh, just share their stories and i don't know if you can't tell i'm already super duper excited to see what uh, what lies await for the film festival one of them or at least one of the films i should say being quantum cowboys a friend of the show kyle gordon is the star of that film it is crazy it's cosmic it involves the multiverse theory it's just it is an incredible film that everybody needs to check out and i mean not to brag or anything but i have that very director on this show for this episode so i hope you stick around and listen to everything this just mad genius has to say because he is not only a physicist an animator but he's also an incredibly humble, creative talent, and I can't wait to see, you know, what he has up his sleeve next, which, as was teased in this episode, maybe a couple of really awesome things. So let's just get right into it. Let's sit down and let's have a chat with the great Jeff Marslett. Uh, hello, uh, wonderful listeners. My name is Jeff Marslett, and I am the uh, co-writer and director and lead animator and one of the actors in the feature film Quantum Cowboys that we uh, premiered earlier this summer. A film that I can't wait for everybody to check out. I I don't think I was prepared when <laughs> when I started watching it, just how uncanny and just head trippy, but also so full of heart you know that movie would have uh super excited about it but before we get into the nitty-gritty of the film itself i do always like to ask our or not our listeners our guests you know how you found yourself in the middle of this industry during uh, essentially a, a crazy time to be an artist and a filmmaker where did you start uh the sort of interest in the arts itself yeah i mean it's uh, filmmaking is maybe uh Everyone who's in every art probably feels like theirs is in some ways the hardest, but I think that I could make a pretty good argument that independent filmmaking actually trumps all those other super hard paths you could take as an artist, uh, in large part because it is, even when done on the smallest of small budgets, it's expensive, and even when done with the smallest of small crews, it's still a lot of people that it takes to pull this off, so you're already trying to do some kind of independent arts, which is crazy. And you're doing it with this really difficult art to pull off, um, you know, and then you, there's not even really a way to show it by yourself. So you keep, you keep making it harder and then you get to make one of these every two or three years. And you're like, if people don't like that one, I got to go two or three more years to even try to impress them instead of driving down to another town and playing a show or painting a second painting. So all arts are hard, but film is, I think, really only for the insane um, as far as indie film is concerned. Uh, so so how I, how did I find myself here? I mean, I, I feel like I spend all day long trying to talk people out of it and then showing them how to do it. So I don't I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like a guy down an alleyway bit by a zombie who's like, you should leave this alleyway before you also get bit. But if you want to get bit, I'll show you the way. And I, and I kind of think that's what filmmaking is. Um, you really only do it if you um, just have this burning desire to get these these ideas out there. And for all that difficulty and all those complaints I just gave about it, the, the magic is you do get to bring together so many cool people to help you realize your idea. And if it does work, 
you sit in a theater and someone stops you afterwards and they tell you something that they saw in your film or why it meant something to them or what they just figured out. And that is really amazing. I mean, I, I think all arts are some version of us as individuals trying to figure out how to communicate our own individual experience because no one else can ever know someone else's experience really, but we can use arts to try and say, this is what my experience was. And when it works, it is like a strange magic trick. So I guess that's what drew me into it. But, you know, I started in physics and uh, got a degree in math and philosophy and worked at the Naval Research Lab and thought I was going to do something very different, but didn't want to teach. And pretty quickly, I realized the part of science and physics that I really liked was uh, quantum physics, was theoretical physics. And there's no applied job for that. There's just teaching. And I was like, well, I don't want to teach. So I went back to school for filmmaking and now I teach filmmaking. So this strange way that life doesn't let you do something other than it has in mind for you. It, it catches you and brings you back in. Um, and film was that trap that my foot was stuck in. But I think that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a great answer. I'm curious how film had an effect on your life before all of this. You know, as you were growing up, were you always very cinematically driven did you have uh, any idols you looked up to as far as filmmaking goes oh, or <laughs> absolutely you know i've always enjoyed film and art and you know when i was in uh you know when i graduated from high school i almost went to the art institute of chicago to paint I, I lots of different things that i thought about uh doing uh because i another thing that makes film great is you're allowed to be a bit schizophrenic about it and and do all these different things for a little while become an expert on this for you know two years and then switch gears to this so it's good for my type of personality, but I like doing a lot of things. Cinema was definitely one of them. You know, I certainly remember the movies. I was, you know, in, in high school in the early nineties and indie film blew me away. I mean, I've always loved star Wars. I love, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. But when I finally got to watch movies by people like, you know, Jim Jarmusch and Alex Cox and Hal Hartley, I was like, this is something totally new and different. Um, and so I did have, you know, films like Straight to Hell that Alex Cox made um, totally made me think, I want to make that. Like, this is the kind of film I want to make. You know, David Byrne's True Stories made me think, I want to make that. Fast forward now, I'm lucky enough to put Alex Cox in my film. So I got, you know, one of my bona fide, you know, very early film heroes to come be in my film. And as it turns out, in three weeks, two weeks. My calendar is such a mess. I don't know anymore, but I'm going to go to a film festival in Spain and uh, Alex Cox and I are both going to attend with my film. And it happens to take place on the set of Straight to Hell. So there's a 15 year old Jeff that's like, oh, wait, I'm going to go to the set of this movie with Alex Cox. It's amazing. Um, but, you know, as I got a little older and more into film, you know, I watched French New Wave and seeing, you know, the Godard films and seeing things like Alphaville. And, uh, you know, Anna Karina is, I think, I'm not in a small group of people who would consider her a cinematic hero and have her at least make a brief appearance in this film is incredible. And Gary Farmer, who did, you know, Pow Wow Highway, that's another movie I watched back in the day and was like, this, this is everything that I want to be doing. And, you know, Gary was the first actor to come on board this film and he'll be with us in Tucson in three or four days. We'll be down in Tucson with Gary and then he'll also be with with us in Santa Fe a week later. So Wednesday and Wednesday, Wednesday in Tucson, Wednesday in Santa Fe. But it's amazing. So these people that helped shape me as a filmmaker were the exact collaborators I was able to use on this film. And that's, um, I think it's something most people don't ever get to do, you know, that you not only get to kind of meet your heroes, but then collaborate with them. And that's, um, even if that's as far as this film goes, to me, that's kind of amazing. And uh, sometimes I have to take a step back and go, I mean, you got to make a movie with Gary Farmer and Alex Cox and Anna Karina, and then musicians that helped shape me, you know, Nico Case, John Doe from X, Hal Gelb, like they're, they're playing the songs in the film. And then, then getting to bring on, you know, a lot of these new people, you know, I had never worked with, you know, Kiowa Gordon, with David Arquette, with Lily Gladstone, you know, it's pretty great uh, to, to bring them all in. And, and, and then, then on top of that, get to bring my friends like Trieste and Frank Mosley and say like, here's these friends that I've known for years and they can be part of this film too. It, yeah, is kind of a charmed moment in my life uh, that I will cherish. So 
it seems like such a surreal experience, especially coming from a directing side. Like I, I can, uh, you know, connect with that from the acting portion of it where you are collaborating for just a small snippet. But for you, I mean, you're the writer, you're the director, you're you're there for the entire process of yeah. it. I mean, did you have to snap yourself with a rubber band at any moment in time I, <laughs> during I these mean, interactions? You know, I I definitely say not even half jokingly. There there are so many people who go into this business and they're like, oh, what I really want to do is direct, and I I really counsel people: be careful what you wish for. Um, Directing is cool because in the end, there's no aspect of this film that doesn't have my fingers all over it. You know, I've meddled with visually every single frame of this film. Certainly all the crazy ideas I was able to put in here. The stuff that works is in large part something I had to do with. And the stuff that doesn't work is in large part something I had to do with. You know, you get to do the whole thing. That's amazing. But um, you're forced to constantly be a part of this and constantly think about the creation of everything. You can't. You never get to just say, I'm going to do this piece of the puzzle as best I can and hope someone else is going to run with that. It's always back up to you. So um, that's already a very difficult chore directing anything um, where I'd say people should really think, do you really want to direct? Because now as a director, I'm the guy that's like, you know, but what I really want to do is act like I, I more and more. I'm like, I want a small role in somebody else's gigantic hassle so that I just come in for two weeks. I do my thing. I leave and they call me in a year and say, hey, you did a great job. And I'm like, that's great. Or, hey, we cut you from the film. I'm like, oh, it's a bummer. <laughs> but, you know, having to do it, you, you never get to put this to bed. So for the last you know three years, I've had to think about this film every day you know, some part of the day, every single day and work on it until four in the morning. So being the director, it's cool because it is really your baby, but it's terrible in the sense that it, it does just hold on to you at all the time and kind of stress you out. Um, so I, it's not for the faint of heart uh, to, to do that. Um, and the rewards are slim, you know, truth be told, if your film does well, someone else will hire your actors, someone else will hire your DP. Hollywood doesn't want any more directors, you know, even when your film does well, they congratulate you. And then somehow at the end of the day, everyone else goes on to some other job and you're just sort of sitting there in the corner, like, uh, I, <laughs> I want a job and you know, they aren't there. So, so don't be a director again, unless you really making this thing is something you want to do. Um, and then if you are going to direct, don't direct an animated film because it's going to take you longer and be harder to begin with. But I had a quote, which I wish I could remember my own quote because it was really good, but animation allows you absolute control. You know, nothing in my movie is an accident or random. Every image you put in a background, everything you do, you have control over. But with that absolute control also becomes this absolute responsibility that you have to think about every piece that goes into it. You're not given any of the freedom of just what it, what did that day look like when you were shooting outside in this location? You don't get any of that. You have to think of it all. So you get to micromanage your universe, but you are also forced to micromanage your universe and you don't get to pick when and turn that on and off. So, so again, if you're crazy, animate a feature film. It's really cool. You get to do everything, but uh, just be ready for it to be all encompassing. I mean, you, <laughs> you brought up the idea of, you know, being schizophrenic yeah. might help in this instance, if you work on a project like this and having watched it, I'm curious what your your outlining process was like just going over everything before you shot a frame of film, you know, where uh, were you on the floor just outlining with, with note cards, trying to break everything down? Were you literally sketching and storyboarding in continuous just to get everything going? I mean, what was that process like? I mean, it's, it's you know, daunting. it's a lot of, I don't know, it's a lot of these. Um, oh I'm, yes. I'm, I'm a moleskin notebook guy. Yeah. And um so the initial ideas were really me and Hal, usually down in Tucson, Hal Gelb, who also co-wrote the initial story idea with me. Uh, he and I would come up with ideas for scenes, things we wanted to put in here. Uh, you know, a lot of this movie is ideas about why we create art and how art creates its own universe as much like the quantum theory of multi-worlds, that creating art is creating multi-worlds. And honestly, creating memory is creating multi-worlds. And uh, where we differ from... I'll just call it the Marvel model, but there's so many movies now that follow the multiverse where it's an excuse to have five Spider-Mans. And that's cool. That's fine. That's a thing. That's not, as someone who study physics, it's not really what the multi-worlds theory is saying in science. It, the multi-worlds theory is coming much more out of, you know, Niels Bohr and Schrodinger and these ideas of 
the non-existence of local reality and the fact that observation affects reality and uh, these ideas of Heisenberg's uncertainty theory and everything can exist, but that multiple universes do come in contact and extinguish each other to leave sort of one thing standing. And even just me explaining that's like, well, that's a bunch of confusing words. I made a movie that's a bunch of confusing words mixed with some confusing images now uh, <laughs> to kind of say that same stuff. But, you know, those are the ideas deep down that Hal and I were talking about. And he was talking about it from a musical standpoint. So how does that affect songwriting, you know, which is the art form he does. And, and from there, we started to talk about what it, we have these weird icon, uh, iconic music that we've created to say this is the American West. So you hear the theme from the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, uh, Ennio Morricone has become what the West sounds like, but that doesn't make any sense. Ennio Morricone is not actually someone from the old West. In fact, Ennio Morricone was contemporary modern person from Europe, you know, not even, but because those films, which turned out to be, you know, when people think about what did the wild west of Texas look like, they see a guy from California, Clint Eastwood, out in Southern Spain being directed by an Italian, you know, in the sixties and seventies, amazing movies, but though that's become people's vision of the West and has very little to do with any kind of real West. But what it did do is it created a piece of art that became so indelible that lots of people internalized it and then it became history and i think we we really do build history that way so this is a really long answer to your question but keeping that in mind is what i kept in mind in writing the script so i knew i wanted to take the world of the western because it's so iconic and remind people that what we think of as the west as cool as that is as much as i love watching those movies has nothing to do with reality and we wanted to say this is what music in the the old west actually sounded like it sounded like you know sonic youth on untuned banjos you know we it was like there was dissonance people didn't have tuners people didn't have a lot of training they just had instruments they pulled out in a bar and played them so we created what we thought that really sounded like but again as soon as we do that i want people to look at it and say oh that's really cool how how and jeff have just told us what music really sounds like in the west but actually we just made it up as well because neither of us were around back then so it's this it's this way of we've just tried to really present an alternative memory and so then I wanted to continue to build on that and say, we have to be reminded that two people can have opposing views or memories of, a, of an event, of a place, and they can both be correct. There isn't always a correct answer. So that gave me a, a really good freedom, though, in keeping it all together. So I haven't lost your question of, of how did I keep this all together was knowing that contradictions can be built into the script, that as long as I remembered my rules of the universe and what I wanted to say, I could present different people's points of view and those could be contrasting. So there could be actual contradictions in the film. But what I had to do then that was hard, the part that comes down to those Moleskine notebooks or these note cards that you have to keep drawing is that in the film, we use, you know, 15 different visual styles and those visual styles each represent a universe. Each of those universes is in fact a point of view of one of the characters. So what I did have to do is I had to make sure that I used the proper animations so that three scenes animated the same way never contradict each other in a point of view, but they might contradict scenes that are shown in a different animation style. So really did have to be careful. And I think all in all, the only person in this production who really knew that answer was me. I was the only one with notebooks full of things saying, no, this part has to look this way, no, this part. And then, you know, the cast and my collaborators were so generous to trust me, they let me say, okay, just no, what you're doing is fine here. It can be different here. And I just had to keep those elaborate notes. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Another confusing answer for you. But no, that the truth of it. <laughs> not confusing. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, uh, I didn't want to spoil too much and obviously nothing's been spoiled online, but listening to you talk about the film through various interviews at different festivals and the idea of exploring the multiverse theory in a way that's not, like you said, you know, five uh, <laughs> five characters of a certain IP that are yeah. just pushed together from uh, various worlds that differ a little yeah. bit. I love the idea and this this theory that you know a, a photograph is you know an alternative version of history where there's two different points, but yeah. it could have you know conflicting points in that singular moment. But that moment happened. And watching the movie, it it um, I don't know. It just it hit differently than any other multiverse, multi-dimensional story could. I think that's what's going to make it stand out. That and the animation in it is completely 
gnarly and fun and <laughs> fun. at a certain point i thought wait is my coffee kicking in because you know certain yeah. certain no. frames are shaking as it's moving oh, and it just it's there's brilliant. i use what i call <laughs> smear vision you know yeah. we use paper we cut out paper and rebuilt them into little doll houses there's traditional stop motion there's digital rotoscoping uh there's a thing called eb synth so that like the stuff when they go to the flashback to vietnam or flash forward to vietnam you know i I just did these really detailed images and used this EB synth to to do some of the tweening there. So there's even some image processing in places. There's oil paintings. There's we I mean, we ran the gambit um, on creating that. And, you know, it, it, what's funny is I wanted people to feel. Because I loved watching, you know, you can take something like everything everywhere all at once and you can see. I feel like what we get to see there is we go with a character and we see them interact in different universes and i think that that's actually really cool but again i want to do something different and i wanted the audience i wanted to say instead of that i don't want to see the character go to different audiences i want to keep seeing the same characters but i want to pick up the audience and keep throwing them into different universes to watch it so i wanted the whole format of the film to change so that you like you sitting with your coffee you're like i did the movie just change what in the world happened you know we really wanted people to feel like they didn't watch someone go to different universes. They had to go to a different universe and watch someone. So that like, it sounds, I think, like semantics, but hopefully that makes sense. I really wanted to lift the audience and drop you into hand-drawn for a minute and then drop you into an oil painting and then drop you into those so that you had to see through that world and everything was suddenly different um, and then try to stitch it all back together um, by the end, which I hope, I think if a viewer doesn't want to put in the work to put that together, my movie could seem very random and they could be frustrated. But I think if they're willing to meet me halfway and think about it, I hope it comes together in the end in a way that people feel like, wait, I'm at least starting to understand what this film was trying to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say this movie calls for everyone. Put your phone down, you know, shut it off and just live in the film itself. And yeah, you are dropping the audience in different places, but you're treating them with the respect of, you know, this is it's not going to be spoon fed to you, but this is happening. You know, it'll it'll click in. And I love yeah. that about the film. That's uh, my favorite films yeah. are films you have to watch five times, you know, because, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's why I love a good David Lynch film. That's why I love, you know, I love a film where the, the third time through, I'm like, I didn't even see that the first two times, you know. So that's what I hope I gave the world is a film that someone will watch five times and be like, this this is different every time I watch it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do. Uh, I want to touch on your your animation background now did you i mean obviously you were uh you know painting you were an artist even before this as well but as far as the rotoscoping and the animation portion of it is that something you were teaching yourself when you went back to school for film or was it something that you were just picking up uh as the years went on uh it's mostly the latter though i I give a good shout out here to my friend francesca talenti who i haven't seen in a long time but i took one in my entire training as uh, you know an animator, I took one animation class, an intro to animation, once, and she taught that class, and I really loved it. And for my final project, I made a film called Monkey versus Robot. Uh, I didn't really know that much what I was doing. I animated with sharpies on typing paper and an old program called Director, and I timed it by literally just looking at my watch and being like, "Ah, oh, that's probably in sync." You know, I didn't know what I was doing at all. I scanned at seventy-two DPI. Um, but it became a hit. It played some festivals. It went to slam dance. It went uh, all over the world. It played like 50 or 60 film festivals, ended up on HBO Central Europe, I think, and PBS and all these places. And it was used to be on the internet before we had to pull it down, but it had over a million views back in like 2001, you know, when the internet still, I feel like was a teenager. And um, suddenly I realized more people had watched this stupid short uh, that I made than I will ever meet. And that starts to be this crazy thing that weighs on you. Like you made this thing, you had some sort of virtual conversation with more people than you'll ever meet. And it really got me hooked on the format uh, because I, I was like, wow, this gets to take what I used to do in drawing and painting. And this lets me do all these things. So from there, I just self-taught and then pretty quickly started self-teaching others. I mean, I, I basically built the animation program at the University of Texas at Austin uh, back in the early days. Uh, I took it from being a one elective course to a whole line of courses, was able to hire more uh, faculty to come and help me teach it and to do things that I didn't know how to do. And I love it. You know, I think animation is a lot like math and science. It's a weird system. And when you start to learn the system of how 
you can do this magic trick of making people see motion, then you're like, I could do that with anything. So suddenly you were doing just like we did this film and saying, it doesn't have to look like Disney. It doesn't have to look like Pixar. It doesn't have to look like Jan Svankmeyer. It can look like anything you want to do as long as you can visualize it and then start playing with stuff until you can make that look. The sky's the limit. And that, again, to whatever craziness is in me, that's really appealing. I'm like, well, no one's ever seen an animation look like this. Let's do that. And uh, um, and you can. And sometimes it fails horribly and sometimes it works great. Uh, but I love the process of bumps and bruises. I love to make some things that don't work. I love I love imperfections. So animation is very good at creating all of the above. And uh, yeah, so then I kept teaching myself animation over the last 20 years and I'm still learning. So, you know, I think, I think I'm going to make a side project soon from some Yiddish folk tales that's all stop motion. And I'm like, I don't really know what I'm doing. Let's build some crazy models. Let's articulate them. We'll figure out if they work halfway through. So, oh my goodness. I have a very pertinent question. How do you balance teaching, you know, your, your, essentially your day job with your artistic endeavors? I mean, how do you balance that internally? Uh, it's very, very hard. Uh, <laughs> your own, you know, your own personal life. I think if someone wants to be an independent filmmaker, you almost have to reach this point where independent filmmaking is not only your second career, which is probably going to be more hours than your primary career. But it also needs to be essentially what you do to socialize, to have fun. It's your life because it will eat it all up. You know, I haven't, I think twice somewhere in my 40s, I took a vacation with my partner and her mom. You know, I, I for 30 years, I didn't go on a vacation ever. Like you never, I never was like, you know what I just really want to do? I want to go to this place. So I'm going to buy a ticket and go there. On the other hand, I've been to all 50 states. I've been to 20 countries. You know, I've gotten to travel the world but it's always in conjunction with showing a film or doing something with this. So I think there's a version of this where you say, okay, I get a lot of cool adventures and I get to do these things, but you have to figure out how that job is your fun extra time because there is no real balance. Um, and your health does take a bit of a hit. I mean, I my voice sounds like this, not because it's supposed to, but because the last two months I haven't stopped traveling and, you know, I'm going to finish this today. I'm going to work on a, some stuff I've got to send, uh, hopefully entice a distributor. And then tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to, tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up and teach two classes. Tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to drive to Tucson. You know, we're going to show a film. Then I'll fly to Montana. Then I'll fly back and teach two more classes and then fly to Santa Fe and show the film and then fly back and teach some more classes and then go to Spain and fly back and teach some more. So you're always on the run trying to do this balance and even making this I just gave myself the rule that when the sun comes up, you have to stop working. So honestly, for two and a half years, I worked until about 4.30 in the morning and then would sleep from 4.30 until nine and go teach the day job and then come back. Even when we shot this, we would start our days, you know, at like 10.30 so that I could get up at 7 a.m., go teach college. Then like, you know, the script supervisor would pick me up from the university and drive me directly to set where we would start shooting. So yeah, I mean, it's hard. <laughs> and it's, you start to do it, you're like, what, this is insane. How are you doing that? And I think um, if you want something enough, you just figure out how to do it, even when it's not a very good balance. And you just say, okay, I'm going to commit to doing this and drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't seem like you're, you're keeping yourself in one facet of, you know, being an artist as well. I mean, you just said you're you have a project coming up you want to work on with stop motion. I mean, I'm sure that keeps it, you know, a little more invigorating than, oh, I have another 90 page script I need to adapt and film, you know, next summer. I'm sure that that makes it a little more exciting each and every time. It, it really does. And, you know, I think um, different people have different approaches. Uh, there are filmmakers I love who uh, make a lot of their effort at doing the same thing a little better every time until they become the master of that genre or the master of that type of filmmaking. Um, that hasn't been what I want to do. I, I'm much more interested in like, you know, my own features. I, my first feature Mars was a sci-fi romance animated film feature. I followed that up with Loves Her Gun, which was a written but all the dialogue was improvised totally live action uh dark drama then i went and produced a documentary with no dialogue about a river in central texas you know made some crazy shorts came back and made whatever quantum cowboys is you know i was like why don't i make a 
partially animated, partially 16 millimeter quantum physics film that's also a Western and a musical. And people are like, yeah, why not? Ooh, about time travel too. You know, so we made that. I like, I like to challenge myself to make new things, to do something new. That's exciting for me. And I think you're right. I think you hit the nail on the head. If you get up every morning and you're like, I'm going to solve this new problem. It's easier, I think, to push through the long hours because it is new and fresh. I always feel a little bit like a student myself in that way. I'm learning what I'm doing as I, as I move along. I'm trying to invent to some degree a new wheel with each film and it doesn't make it better or worse than anyone else's film. It just makes it my style of film. And I, I do enjoy doing that. Yeah. And outside of the, the beast that is stop motion, I mean, is there something you want to accomplish within your career and maybe not within the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, but something you'd like to, to just finish or do, is there any, uh, sort of great white buffalo that you're chasing career-wise? You know, I I think that in some ways I was able to do that with this film, but I would like to go maybe even a little little further with that and that um, I think as a consumer of art, I'm always looking for something I've never seen. That's what I find really exciting. When I see something and I'm like, even if I hate it, if I see something new and I'm like, man, I hate that thing, but I didn't know I hated that thing until I just discovered that <laughs> thing existed, you know, it, it was still new. And so there's a little part of me, it's like, well, that's a hike I'm never going on again, but I'm kind of glad I did. So now I know I don't like that. I, that's my, you know, white whale. I want to create some stuff that no one's ever seen before. I want someone to watch it and be like, well, Jeff made that thing and that's him. Like it's not derivative of anything at some point. It just, even if they don't like it, I hope I gave people something they've never seen before. And what I would really hope to do, I mean, I, I hope there's some version of the universe where we get to make the two sequels to this film, because I want to raise the bar two more times on this film. I want people to watch this one and think they understood what was going on and then give them the second one and go, wow, Maybe I maybe I really don't understand what's going on here. There's more to this. And then there's a third one. I'm like, oh, let's see if we wrap this up or if I just keep digging the hole deeper. But, um, you know, that would be a goal of mine is to, to somehow have the freedom and the budget and the team to keep making these for a little while. Because, um, again, I hope that somewhere along the way, somebody like me will stumble on them and say, wow, I didn't know a film could be this. And then they'll go make something totally different. But that that is the thing I really want to put on the screen is the kind of movies where people say, I didn't even know this could be a film. I, you know, uh, that's exciting to me. That's exciting to me as a, as a viewer. And it's definitely exciting to me as a maker. That was actually going to be my next question. Where's the bringing up the continuation factor of this story and whether or not you consider, you know, still filming within Colorado, like you did with this one. Yeah. I, I might not film here hmm. for, well, for two reasons. One, um, just in Colorado, and I, you know, I teach here and I love living here. I think we've still got a long ways to go to build infrastructure that makes it feasible, especially for lower budget films. I think we're very feasible for expensive films to come here and film. And so, you know, things like Hateful Eight come to the state and they can very successfully look amazing in Colorado because we have great mountains. We have great, we actually have a, a ton of geography to show and relatively good weather although i will say that we shot this whole movie below freezing and it shouldn't have been it was in october you know <laughs> here we shot it was the same dates we're sitting here right now and it's beautiful outside for some reason october 2019 was awful and cold and snowed like three feet which made all of our horse scenes and if you watch this movie every scene where you see people riding horses the director of the film had to go through frame by frame and cut all that snow out and replace the ground with snow with non-snow ground so that brings up the second reason you know i think the film takes place in Arizona and in these deserts and it's hot and trying to get Colorado to cooperate with desert and hot is harder than I want it to be. So there's a part of me, it's like, let's just drive down to New Mexico, or Arizona and shoot the sequels where it'll probably look more like what we want when we take the actors outside for any of the live action stuff. Um, that having been said, what was great shooting here. And, you know, one of the reasons we might still is the crew we did get to work with was amazing here in Colorado. Um, there is, a very small but very committed group of indie filmmakers in this state. And they do actually make really cool stuff. I think sadly, most of them leave the state to do the work because they're just 
isn't enough of an indie film infrastructure here to keep them employed and you know keep them getting to do as much of what they want so they go down to albuquerque or santa fe or they go out to la or they go out to new york um they even go up to montana um i think that colorado needs better incentives colorado needs some more affordable shooting spaces all the things that make you know frankly colorado needs one or two tv series shooting here regularly so that there are actors that are living here you know because we lose a lot of good actors there's a lot of really good actors from colorado there's you know that don't live here anymore because if you're a really good actor and you you want to keep working it's hard to find enough gigs uh living here so of course you move down to albuquerque or of course you move to la and i can't fault anyone but it does make it hard as a director of indie films to keep looking for your local resources here um, because you're almost going to have to bring everything in so i don't know the answer is we might shoot here again it would really depend on how it aligns but um it's a challenging state to do a major project in um and that's kind of a bummer because it's also an awesome state to do a, a major project in yeah it's uh been i don't know at least on my end about a 12 year wait of them saying oh we're introducing incentives and then every year yeah. it's denied you know it never goes through so we're just sitting here holding our breath <laughs> For yeah, something that happened. You know, there's some great <laughs> folks up in Fort Collins, you know, trying to get, you know, I know they got like the horse tooth festival off the ground and they're yeah. doing, you know, 48 hour. There there are people here really trying to put things together. The AD on my film, Alex, he just finished a feature film, you know. Um, but it's very hard because there isn't there isn't the level of state support you would get in Colorado or in New Mexico. And that state support not only can support your projects, but because that state support is supporting major TV shows and other productions, then all the people that are employed in New Mexico working on those are available to work on your project as a side project. And, you know, here we've kind of got commercials and commercials are great because they pay well, but they're actually hard for indie people because then you, you try and get a sound person from commercials and their day rate is way out of, it's what a commercial can pay. It's not what an indie film can pay. So then you're like, Hey, can you work for nothing? And they're like, I don't want to work for nothing. And then pretty soon you're driving down to New Mexico and you know, anywhere that there's just more people working it as a jobby job, there's more people that can work yours as a side job. And that's Colorado. It's a, it's a hard formula, but if it would start with Colorado giving us more incentives. And I think that that's the first step towards what's improved in Austin, what's improved in New Mexico, what, you know, Arizona just passed a bunch of new incentives. You know, it's uh, Colorado should jump on it because otherwise everyone's going to go to the edges and leave Colorado behind. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, isn't it insane? We we passed a uh, an amendment to legalize marijuana in state before we've ever, you know, truly allowed big film projects or TV projects to to come through here. I have friends who are very up and coming independent filmmakers who just swept forty eight hour film festival in yeah. L A. Yeah, <laughs> it's insanity, and they're just... they're probably sending you emails like you should move to L A. Bro, <laughs> like. Yeah, I feel like I mean that's what everybody will tell you because you know there are more opportunities. Um, you know, so many more things are getting made that it just, and, and then it becomes hard because honestly, even when a project comes to Colorado, they're more likely to import someone from LA to do a job than hire someone locally. And at first, that just sounds awful, but I also get it because they get worried the Colorado crew doesn't have enough work that they're up to speed and well oiled. But if they hire this LA crew that's been working every single week this month, they know you're coming right off another set and you already know what you're doing. So I also get where they're even afraid, even a Colorado-based production is afraid, I can hire a local and hope they know what they're doing, or I can hire this tried and true crew that just came off of three TV movies. And since everyone's bean counting, it's hard to fault these companies that are like, let's just bring in the out-of-town crew. Um, but if we could get it, if we could get things running here so people are always shooting something in Colorado, they won't have those fears. You know, they'll have yeah. a well-oiled local crew, which is always better than a well-oiled, uh, you know, road crew. So I guess I've got optimism in me, but I think there's, there's still some pretty big hurdles. I, I hope this, my film, I mean, it's a small piece of it, but I hope some aspect of the powers that be in Colorado can see, you know, I shot a film here and it, you know, we premiered at Annecy and we, you know, won the audience choice in Paris and we played Munich and, you know, we played Fantastic Fest. They can start to see something made here really uh, can compete uh, on that national and international field. But we just need to 
be able to make more here. Yeah. No, I have, I have a great feeling about it. Honestly, I, uh, I'm excited to see, see what happens. And amidst this crazy industry that we've decided to completely devote our lives to, uh, it, 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 it will, <laughs> it will pull you in. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of like a sand pit, honestly, but, uh, with all of that, you know, it's, it's a lot of just, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of acidic elements to, working in this industry, building a career, making a project, making sure somebody sees that project and not even caring if they like it, but just seeing if, if something works out. So with that, you know, I, I love asking, what do you do to decompress? Because not only do you have this, you have a, a job teaching and going over papers and creating a whole structure for your class. So what do you do to help yourself sort of calm down and uh, decompress from the, the day or the week or the months that you've had? <laughs> it's super hard. Um, you know what? That is one great thing, though, living out in the West, living in Colorado or Arizona or New Mexico. The number one thing I probably do is I really do love to go hike. Um, I just get out in nature. Um, it's a few minutes where you don't have to look at a screen. Uh, nothing's demanding you do some work like you're 12,000 feet and three hours from your car. You just you're going to have to walk back for three more hours and just not do the other stuff. And I think that for me is the best. I love going to national parks. I love stopping into whatever the local diner, Mexican food, whatever I can get that just that to me, that's what I love doing. And other people have other, maybe they play a sport or they do, you know, different things, but I really like to go and see some nature and walk around, eat at a small local place, get some coffee. That's, that's my favorite thing to do to decompress. And Again, that is one nice thing about being out here in in the West is there's a lot of that to do. You know, it's we do have a wealth of of mountains to climb and streams to hike along, and all of that really helps me a lot. Um, that's probably the number one thing I do. It was yeah. that and my cat. My cat passed away recently, so I don't get to pet her anymore. But that was oh, the other yeah. thing. Just come over at the end of the day, get yourself a good cat. She helped me animate this film. She sat on my lap every day. You know, you. Find something that helps you unplug from the rest. Uh, and it's it's important because otherwise you're going, you're going. I mean, you can even hear it in my interview. You start talking fast. You're thinking fast. You're always like, I got to do three things at once. Um, and then sometimes you can just go for a walk and get yourself back into this yeah. speed. You're like, oh, yeah, well, that's okay. This is a little more relaxed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm sorry to hear about your cat. I mean, that's yeah. especially during all of this, if that was ever going to happen, that's probably the worst time for that. It was a bad time, but she's in the film. You know, she is the cat in the film too. So she gets to make an appearance. How many, how many feral cats from Austin can say they were in a movie with David, (laughs) you know, David Arquette and Anna Karina, right? That's (laughs) not most cats. It's a a good claim to fame. She was a feral cat. Yeah. Yeah. It took about seven years to get her to let us even touch her. She was a very skittish, shy, feral cat. And, uh, you know, once we got her in and she, learned about you know bisque and you know canned cat food and sleeping on the bed she by you know within a year or so she was like i'm never going outside again guys i I hate the outside i sleep in the bed and she was the most cuddly sweet cat ever then you know some of the vets were like she's feral you'll never tame her but she was uh beyond tame she's really a wonderful like little companion and she did you know because i would work until the middle of the night every night for a couple years and she she liked that because then I would feed her every two hours all night. But then she'd also sit on my lap and, you know, walk around the computer, sometimes, you know, put her paw on the keyboard and help me that way. But she was so it was pretty great. Oh, my God. I love that. Well, I've <laughs> quick, quick anecdote. I've worked in breweries, you know, since beginning of college on and off. And they always had feral cats to, you know, keep the vermin out. Yep. yep. Every single one I met. Yeah, they're they're labeled as this, you know, ferocious beast. But the second you show them a little bit of compassion, a little bit of care and love, they'll never leave your side. Yeah, it's they become so sweet. I think, you know, they're yeah. out there. They've been living a hard life out there, you know, <laughs> and whenever they realize you're you're like a friend, they they can be the sweetest. I mean, I they're my favorite, you know, yeah. feral cats are I much kinship to feral cats. Yeah. And I think they they've worked their way through it. And so, yeah, I'm I'm that crazy cat guy in the street, you know, in Austin, I had a feral colony and i'd do the catch and release you know get them and fix them and then keep them in the yard put food out but yeah we had no squirrels no rats you know none of the vermin that other people in the neighborhood had because you know there were 20 cats in the yard (laughs) they patrol pretty well (laughs) 
They do their job. <laughs> the most dangerous yard in Austin yep. for a yeah. rat. <laughs> yeah, if you're a rat, you're like, I'm not going there. You know, whatever that is, it looks looks like the worst place I could ever go. So, <laughs> Well, given your incredibly diverse background and just everything you have an interest in, everything you want to do, I do also, like, this might be my favorite question of all to ask during yeah. the show is, if you have a party story you could share with the show. Now, it doesn't have to be something that takes place at a party, but uh, a moment, an interaction, a uh, a memory you have, you know, working either on set, writing, just anything, even during your life that stood out so immensely, you could easily recall it at a party. Oh, Do you have anything like that you could oh, share? I mean, you know, yes, the answer is so many. I, I mean, again, <laughs> I mean, really, like the, I feel like that's whenever I get old and die, however far away that is. And you think back, there's so many moments that I'm like, well, I did that thing and it was insane, but I'm so glad I did it. Uh, Honestly, making films, touring with those gives you a lot of that, um, that opportunity. Uh, So yeah, I've got a lot of those crazy stories. Uh, There's a really good one about flying to uh, Dublin and getting a lock in at a bar and then having to get to Berlin. But I'll give you a shorter one. Cause I want, that's a, that's like a whole series. I'll give you a recent <laughs> one that is a party story of a party. Um, but uh, you know, we were on tour with the film in Europe. We, we premiered at Annecy in uh, Annecy in the French Alps. And um, we, we just had a great time. Annecy's everyone there for anyone who doesn't know, it's the number one animation festival in the world. And, they were premiering Minions and they were premiering Buzz Lightyear there. And we were in the, you know, indie film competition, which was fantastic. And, you know, we'd have theaters packed full of these animators. So it was a great time. But we had a week to kill between there and our next festival, which was in Paris. Actually, not even a week, like three days or something uh, at the Champs-Élysées Film Festival. And we had a press agent and she was amazing. And we just, uh, John, one of the actors and I became friends with her and took off on this crazy uh, road trip between the two where we were like, John and I was going to take a train in from Annecy to Paris and it was going to be boring and regular and just what you do. Uh, But she was like, no, no, come with me. And we drove to this crazy spa. I would, I would never pay 65 euros to go to a spa, but I was like, when else am I going to be in the French Alps? Maybe paying 65 euros to go to a spa. So we did. And it's like the, the base of Mont Blanc and it's in Chamonix and you know, we're just there and you're drinking wine in this incredible spa. And then we get in the car and we drive to Burgundy and wine country. And we're now in these like 700 year old basements drinking better wine. And I, I was sure good wine would be lost on me. I'm like, I'm some guy from Texas. Like, do I really know the difference between, you know, a $30 bottle of wine and a $200 bottle of wine? The answer is probably not. Turns out the answer was actually yes. It does taste that much better. But these crazy old French guys, they don't speak English. And she's helping us get our wine. You know, we do all that. We get to Paris and uh, Paris is Paris. So we're showing a film and the Champs-Élysées Film Fest is amazing. And they throw a party on this rooftop that overlooks the Arc de Triomphe at the top of the Champs-Élysées every night. So now we're drinking wine and suddenly, suddenly it's been like three weeks of not sleeping, you know, because you're just up all night with people telling you they like your work, which as a maker is the greatest thing that can ever happen is, you know, someone's like, your movie's amazing. I'm like, let's have another. I want to hear you say that more. Um, so we're doing all that and we're looking at this and the pictures are beautiful. And finally we have to go to Munich. And I mean, you say the word Munich, it's like, well, that's probably cool. We're going to go play the Munich film festival, but is Munich going to be Paris? Like, you know, no one says like, I want to have my wedding in Munich. They're all like, you know, we're going to go to Paris for our honeymoon. So we were all like, well, we're going to leave Paris and we're going to go to Munich. And It'll be good. It'll be like the come down before we go back to the States. And we go to Munich and somehow magically Munich was amazing. We, we found a hotel lobby that just somehow let us drink all night in their hotel lobby. I'm not even totally sure this is legal. So I'm going to leave all the names of everything off, but somehow they would let us just keep a list of how many bottles of wine we took from the bar and drank in this lobby full of taxidermy and red velvet and people joined us and it was like we had gone through the wardrobe in Narnia. It was like this magic place where we're all exhausted, but suddenly you're in Munich. We made this strange pop-up bar where everyone looks like they're in a Renaissance painting. And by the third night of that, everyone at the festival who would hear about it wanted to join us and sit there. And 
our musician from Ireland is playing piano and a couple of other filmmakers that came to a screening uh, from the UK have shown up and I'm there with one of the actors and Lily's flown in and she's sitting in a chair that looks like a swan. And it was just like, who knew Munich could be so magical and how pulling yourself out of your normal circumstances and going and just being able to sit in this hotel lobby until the sun comes up and you're, you're pulling the red velvet curtain shut. And the, the guy who runs the hotel is like, you just got to be gone by the time we serve breakfast at 8 a.m. And you're so drunk and you're so tired and you know, you have to show your film again at like 11 a.m. in a few hours and you have five interviews in the morning, but you just keep doing it. That was, that was pretty, uh, this pretty amazing experience to be there. And, uh, you know, you didn't want to leave and to, you know, to even now, whatever, three months later, you're like, wow, if I could just magically go back to sit in that space and have my glass of wine and just not care that it's 530 in the morning and I'm exhausted because we're just enjoying art for its own sake. It doesn't sound like the wildest thing to do, but I feel like it's more fun than some of the wildest crazy things I've done is to just sit there and kind of wallow in art and be so far from the rest of your life. And you're just sitting there talking to people from all different continents about why you make a movie. And no one cares about our responsibilities for that little window. It was pretty darn incredible. So thank you, Munich. Munich Film Fest, thank you for having us. You you let we we even named our mysterious pop-up bar the missing apple. So thank you for letting us create the missing apple bar in the middle of the night. So yeah. Is uh, that a good story? Yeah, that was so much better than I expected it would be. Like <laughs> by, by far. Usually it's, you know, I met this person or interacted with this uh, this this person that but that's you created a a such a tangible memory that I don't have, but I feel like I've acquired you, through well, you. Sometime come with me to Munich, and we'll, yeah. we'll be invited to the Missing Apple Bar. So. Oh my God! Yes, yeah, that wow. Um, not sure who's going to top that this week. I can tell you that much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but this follow up goes well with that, which is uh, if you have any advice you could pass along to our listeners, whether it's somebody who is you know, in the middle of college and wants to be an artist, or maybe there's somebody who has been, uh, you know, kind of honing their skills for the last few years and is a little too afraid to, to make that final yeah. jump. Do you have anything you could pass along to them? Yeah, I mean, several things. I mean, one thing really something I hinted out at the beginning, the first thing I'd, I always tell people when they're like, Hey, I want to make movies. I want to get into this. Don't, um, don't write off all of the trades that go into making a film because while the director does a cool thing, everybody on set does a really cool thing. And if you're, if you find costume design is your thing, cinematography, script supervising, I mean, all these, you know, gaffing that if you pick a trade, instead of being the masthead, instead of being the director, you really can focus on just doing that amazingly well. And you can do four films a year, five films a year doing that. So come the end of three years, you have 15 films you got to work on and we're all exciting and cool. As a director, for good or bad, you are shackled to one film until you see it through. So you'll get to do like one film in three or four years. And if it doesn't turn out how you want, you got to be okay knowing you threw three or four years away on that. So the first bit of advice I give people that I think they often miss is don't write off those other jobs as unimportant. Don't write them off as unrewarding. Don't write them off as uncreative. That sometimes getting to work, you know, on 10 different films doing that thing you like can be 10 times more rewarding. So I, I, that's the first thing I tell people is I think too often we go, oh, who's who's the guy that made that film? And like, well, it, it's actually not some guy that made that film. It's a whole army of different individuals that made that film. And they're all having just as fulfilling a time doing it. So so that's the first bit of advice I give is, is really decide if directing is what you actually want to do. And don't ever feel bad or don't feel like, oh, I, I somehow copped out by not being the director because none of that's true. The director isn't, more important or better. It's just another one of the jobs. If you do want to be the director, the next thing I'd tell you is um, if there's any way you can do it within the industry, meaning you can do it with some kind of distribution attached for your projects, I would do that instead of going the independent route, just because the independent route is very far from a guarantee that your work will even be seen, much less that you get to make another one. I know so many amazing directors who made one great indie film and they never got to make another because the financials of this are so difficult. Whereas if you can attach yourself to a sci-fi TV show or you can attach yourself to anything that has built-in distribution, you'll get paid, you do your job well, you'll get to make another one. So I would say explore that before you run out of options there. Um, third, I would say if you're going to do independent, you're going to do it. 
don't ever get up and think, what is the, what do people want? What, what am I going to make that will make that splash? Because you've already missed the boat. If you want to make what people want, go back one step in my flow chart and do it in the industry because what people want, they'll pay for in the industry. So don't make it out here independently. This is harder. Go back. If it's what people want, make it in the industry. But if what you really want to say from your inside is totally crazy and totally individual and you tried to walk this and like the industry is like, you are exactly what we don't want, which, you know, take it from me. You may hear that, you know, nobody was clamoring for quantum cowboys. Nobody was like, this is the film we really want to see. They were like, absolutely not the film we want to make. If that's what's left and you still really want to make it, then I would say the third part of this, though it sounds kind of counter to the other two, is just don't let anyone tell you no. Um, be realistic about what your resources are and then figure out how you can tell that idea with those resources. And that might mean make a three-minute short instead of a feature. Pick some tiny part of what you want to say and say that as well as you can. It might mean spend eight years and do it with stop-motion you know, dolls. It might mean a lot of things, but I think if it's still something you want to say, ask yourself what you want to say and why you want to say it. And then buy a Moleskin notebook. I tell my students this all the time. Work until you can give me two sentences to tell me exactly what you want to say and why you want to say it. And then look at those and say, how can I do this on my resources? Then this is a very important last step of this. Don't, don't try to overbite. Like don't, if you know you can't have five celebrity actors in a giant budget for effects, don't try to make a Marvel movie. That's crazy. Yours won't work. It won't look as good. Ask yourself how you can still say what you wanted to say smaller and better. You're always better to shrink the scope but make the output you make exceptional. And if it still says that individual thing that you really want to say, it's going to be exceptional. And when I say exceptional, I just mean stand out. It might be exceptionally bad. It might be exceptionally successful. It might be something no one even recognizes the value of for 20 years, but it'll be that thing you wanted to say. So Again, all my answers today have been long. That's kind of a long answer. But I would say don't write off. Don't don't assume you have to be the director. Do actually look for ways that there are in the industry for you to get paid doing it. But if what you want to say is still there, don't let anyone tell you no. And just find a way and find a scope to do that as well as you can. And then you know what? Do it. Don't wait 10 years. I've, I've got a lot of friends who've never made their film because they've been waiting for the perfect storm of financing and this and that. That perfect storm is unlikely to show up if it didn't show it's going to show up fast or it's not showing up at all. So if you've been working on this thing for a year and you haven't gotten traction, I would say, look at it, ask yourself how you can make it yourself next month and then just do, just figure out how and then do it. And then if it doesn't work, ask yourself how you can make a different one six more months later and try that. And obviously don't put your family in bankruptcy. So again, figure out what you could do. Do you have friends that'll do this with you? What are the production values you can't afford? But keep trying because the other thing that's going to happen is every single film you make, if you're doing it right, you're going to get better. So whatever film you're making right now, hopefully this is the worst one you'll make for the rest of your life. You know, I mean, like, and I'm not wishing you ill on this film, but just know that however it is, the next one's better and the next one's better and the next one's better. Um, that's what I would say is my best advice. Oh, I love it. And I know you, you say you're saying you know uh you're dragging these answers along they're they're long-witted they're not this is <laughs> pertinent very, very much needed information especially when it comes to wanting to be a filmmaker especially yeah. a filmmaker of you know your ilk where you are taking all these different things and putting them together and making it work so that no that's perfect that's uh and outside of quantum cowboys I mean, is there anything that i can promote with this episode whether it be another film, uh, upcoming project, maybe an organization you really believe in. Is there anything I can? Yeah. I mean, what I always encourage people if they, I, I hope you all will come see quantum Cowboys. If you can find where to see it, you know, like I said, we're in Tucson, we're in Santa Fe, we're in Missoula, we're in Spain, we're in Poland, we're in Vancouver tonight. I think we're actually in Vancouver, uh, Canada, BC. Um, we're also playing Minneapolis at sound unseen coming up. And we are playing, oh, Korea. If anyone, if anyone in Korea is listening to us right now, we're also playing uh, the Busan Animation uh, Festival. Uh, so I think those are our next bunch of ones. I could have left one out. Hopefully there was no offense to anyone. It's just me being spread thin. But uh, I do, if you can watch it, I'd love the support. Uh, you know, let me know what you think. If you like it, go on, you know, without a box and say nice things. If you don't like it, just you can keep that to yourself. It's fine. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, or, or IMDb or wherever you vote for things. Uh, but if, 
if you did see it and enjoy it, or you want to see other work, uh, I have a great short that's still on, it's a Vimeo staff pick called The Phantom 52 with Tom Skerritt that I'm really proud of. It's only seven minutes of your life. So if you don't want to seek out my new film, you can always watch that seven minute film. And I'm, I'm very proud of it. Um, but I would tell all of you to, if you want to do something for me in a way, it doesn't promote me, unfortunately, but it, I think it promotes everybody. Uh, wherever you live, there are regional film festivals. So like the Denver Film Fest is coming up. If, you, if you're here locally, please come see Quantum Cowboys, the Den Denver Film Fest. But please go see some of those other films. Go see the shorts. Don't just go see the stuff that is getting all the press. Like it's really great to watch everything everywhere all at once or uh, the incredible weight of being Nicolas Cage or whatever that title is. They're great films. You should watch those. They're awesome. But they're also films with national distribution and streaming and all of those things. When you look at a film festival list, there's a bunch of films like Quantum Cowboys. Uh, you know, I'll promote Lily Gladstone for a minute, who is, frankly, you should also go see her little tiny indie film, Killers of the Flower Moon, that this guy Martin Scorsese is directing. I don't know if it's going to get any real press, but that's coming out. You know, uh, she's the star of my film and the star of that film. But, um, you know, she also has another film called The Unknown Country that's played a bunch of these festivals. And I always encourage people to see films like that, that you might not have otherwise get a chance to see, especially on the big screen. And I think I want to thank you. You mentioned at the beginning of this interview that I, my film is one of those that you really need to turn your cell phone off and pay attention. If you're also checking your email while you watch my film, you're not going to like it. It's not going to make sense. There's a lot of information coming very quickly and it's confusing. But if you sit in a dark theater and have to watch it, you have a lot better chance of liking it. And I think a lot of the indie films take chances like that of saying, hey, you know, David Lynch wouldn't have the career he has if we'd had to watch all of his early films while we were checking our email. I think people would have given up on A Lost Highway. They would have given up on Eraserhead. Instead, those are some of the most influential films, you know, of the last 30 years. So I think what all of you should do is when you get the chance, seek out these films that might, quote unquote, not be as good, you know, not be as expensive, not be as polished. But check them out, see what people are doing uh, when they're really thinking outside of the box and when that film might not come back around. So I'm just going to promote all every single small film organization around the country, every Austin Film Society, every Denver Film Society, every Tallgrass, you know, or Sidewalk Film Festival. I think go see those movies because they're they're awesome. Go the horse tooth, you know, if you're local too, the horse tooth stuff they do at the Lyric and uh, just up the road in Fort Collins, everything that's going on down at the C Center, uh, you know, in Denver, uh, the stuff we play uh, on campus at the International Film Series, really check those out because you you won't regret it. That's what I'll promote. Yes. <laughs> I feel like not a whole lot of people know about, uh, you know, local film festivals or even film societies within their town. So yeah, yeah definitely look that up if you're interested. Uh, no and if where you want to be a filmmaker, if you're, you know, if, if somebody's 15 year old high school kid listening to this right now and they're like, hey, I want to be a filmmaker. Uh, that's where to start, you know, volunteer at those festivals, join those film societies because um, they're going to start connecting you to the same way. You know, I fell in love with Anna Karina and with Alex Cox and with Gary Farmer. Um, you know, they're going to connect you opening those worlds of films you didn't know existed. Of Sometimes harder to watch films, frankly, but ones that are going to help you build film language and ideas of what cinema can be. And I feel like most cities of a certain size all have this and it's they should be sought out. You should support them because they're also generally really interesting people that run them. So you also can make good friends in your towns. So. Yeah. And you know what, Jeff, I just want to say before we wrap up here, thank you for taking the time to sit down talk about you talk about your film uh, cool. based on the schedule you have currently, man, <laughs> you should be unconscious right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, it's just been a joy chatting with you and, I hope, you know, as the, the show goes on, as your films, you know, continue to uh, you know, go into production and are wow. released and grow, that I can have you back and maybe even do one in person because I, uh, as I we found out, we, we live so close together. I know. I didn't realize you were so, so close to where I am, you know. Um, that's amazing. And absolutely, you know, if um, if things work out and so, well, for one, I don't know if you, if you come to the Denver Film Fest, please do. And, you know, a lot of the crew and some of the cast will be with me in Denver. Please oh, come find me if you yeah. are at the Denver Film Fest and let's hang out and grab a drink. But uh, 
further, if we are lucky enough to make more of these films, I'd love to invite you out to set and see what we do. So maybe something oh, like that. Absolutely. I guarantee you, I will be uh, sending in a tape for those films as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's how I built most of my career. And then I started this in the pandemic. So this is my way of keeping that networking uh, muscle still afloat, but yeah, yeah uh, to come on set and just absorb everything you're doing and go, how is this going to affect me in a dark theater in nine months? Like, I'm so excited. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Well, and I was so happy to see you'd had Kiowa on because he's yeah. right. I, you had one other person, right? Who else? It was Kiowa. Uh, I had Akiko Tabe and Jessica oh. Matten. Yeah, you know, uh, and uh, Aki, like, I haven't seen him in person 20 years, maybe. He no acted way. in a student film I made while I was still in grad school. He was great. I think he was probably the best. I don't want to knock anyone. I can't remember who else was in that particular film. So I won't say the best, but I'm going to say probably the best, uh, one of the best performers in that. But um, wow. yeah, so I should, I'm, we're still Facebook friends. I'm going to have to tell him I did this, uh, this podcast uh, and let him know. But that I was, when I saw his name on the list of people you'd interviewed, I was like, that's amazing because I haven't seen him in 20 years. Um, uh, wow. But yeah, so. That's crazy. 20. Yeah. <laughs> let him he know. Was in Austin. He, was, he was an Austin guy back in the day. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. No, it's uh, this has just been a, a giant, um, a giant project. It's been growing continuously. I'm meeting more and more people, and uh, it's just been great hearing everyone's story. And yeah, uh, Denver Film Fest. In fact, when this episode comes out, we will be a few weeks away from it. So uh, this will be promoted with the film <laughs> and getting everyone's ears and eyes on it. Uh, but before we depart this recording, I have one last thing we need to do, Absolutely. and that is conduct our infamous awkward goodbye. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if, I mean, you're a, a huge Jarmish fan, but uh, I grew up on the sort of grunge comedies of the 90s. So are you familiar with Wayne's World? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So the awkward goodbye starts with me giving you a silent Wayne's World countdown where I'm doing the numbers. And then when I point to you, just give me your best verbal Awkward goodbye, and I will end the recording on that. Okay. You can be ready for that. I'm ready. All right. Here we go. In. Until next time, this has been a pretend world. Goodbye.